welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's another big week on the podcast, but it's also a good one for non-citizens. Indeed, while there are some losses, I can't remember the last time we had this many important wins in one week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, everyone. Starting out with a duo of Ninth Circuit decisions. First, Cordero Garcia v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 15, 2022. This decision is authored by District Judge Moskowitz from the Southern District of California, my local jurisdiction, with a dissent from Judge Van Dyke. And just at first skimming the summary, I shuddered, seeing that this case is about INA Section 11A43S, Obstruction of Justice, Aggravated Felonies, and the BIA's decision in matter of Valenzuela Gallardo II. We've tackled this complicated issue on the podcast three times by my count, including when the Ninth Circuit took Valenzuela Gallardo II on direct petition for review on episode 15. Here we go again. Mr. Cordero Garcia is from Mexico and has been a lawful permanent resident since 1965. 44 years after receiving LPR status and still an LPR, he was convicted of dissuading or attempting to dissuade a witness from reporting a crime in violation of California Penal Code section 136.1b1 and he was sentenced to two years imprisonment. The procedural history is long and complicated, but suffice to say, he had some other convictions that also made him removable, but as long as his section 136.1 conviction is not an aggravated felony, he remains eligible for LPR cancellation of removal under INA section 240AA. And that issue got real complicated because while it was being adjudicated, there was back and forth between the BIA and the Ninth Circuit in matter of Valenzuela Gallardo regarding the definition of an INA Section 11A43S, aggravated felony, a law relating to obstruction of justice. In the middle of the BIA and the Ninth Circuit's fight about matter of Valenzuela Gallardo, this decision resulted in a published decision by the BIA in this very case, matter of Cordero Garcia, in 2019 
whereby the BIA concluded that this crime is an aggravated felony. The Ninth Circuit is reviewing that published BIA decision right now. But not in a vacuum, because the Ninth Circuit struck back in 2020, vacating the BIA's decision in matter of Valenzuela Gallardo II and holding that, quote, obstruction of justice under section 11843S unambiguously requires a nexus to ongoing or pending proceedings, end quote. Check out episode 15 for that decision, in addition to the Fourth Circuit's Pugin decision on episode 84 and the First Circuit's decision in Silva on episode 97. But suffice it to say, in the Ninth Circuit, to match the definition of an aggravated felony at INA section 11843S, the state court conviction must require obstruction of justice related to an ongoing or pending proceeding, rather than simply a reasonably foreseeable one. Also, as Matter of Valenzuela Gallardo II was vacated by the Ninth Circuit, it is zombie precedent that shouldn't be followed anywhere. But no circuit seems to have addressed the issue of vacated zombie BIA decisions, so far as I can tell. So let's just stick with the Ninth Circuit, where that decision, Matter of Valenzuela Gallardo II, is definitely not good law. All of that means this. Regardless of what the BIA concluded in Matter of Cordero Garcia, and applying the categorical approach here, does California Penal Code Section 136.1b1 require a nexus to ongoing or pending proceedings to obtain a conviction? It does not. Convictions occur in California when individuals attempt to dissuade witnesses before any prosecution even possibly begins. The text of the California statute is also clear. There is no nexus requirement to an ongoing or pending proceeding. It doesn't match the Ninth Circuit's definition of an INA Section 11843S aggravated felony. Accordingly, Oil didn't argue otherwise. Instead, Oil did what it's supposed to do. It defended the BIA's published decision in Matter of Valenzuela, Guiardo. See, in that decision, the BIA reached its definition of Section 11843S by looking to Chapter 73 of the Federal Criminal Code, aka 18 U.S.C. Section 1512, I believe. And the BIA held that at least some of those federal crimes didn't require a nexus to an ongoing or a pending proceeding. To defend the BIA's decision, therefore, Oil took the position that the Ninth Circuit did not disturb that portion of the BIA's Valenzuela Guiardo decision, that is, that Chapter 73 of the Federal Criminal Code is a guide to whether a state crime is a Section 11843S aggravated felony. Extrapolating on that, Oil argued that California Penal Code Section 136.1b1 matches one such federal offense, 18 U.S.C. Section 1512f1. So, Oil argued, the California conviction must be an aggravated felony. A bit of a complicated argument, but that is what Oil had to work with in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit wasn't buying it. First of all, the Ninth Circuit's latest Valenzuela Gallardo decision makes clear what the definition is. It requires a nexus to an ongoing or pending prosecution. No federal criminal statute changed what the Ninth Circuit held in its Valenzuela Gallardo decisions. But second, and in any event, the Ninth Circuit has a different reading of the federal criminal statute. At the end of the day, and recognizing the circuit split with the Fourth and the First Circuit, the Ninth Circuit is bound by its own Valenzuela Gallardo definitions, and in any event, appears to agree with it. Also to wrap up this case then, because the Ninth Circuit found the aggravated felony definition statutory text clear previously, 
That means that it owes no Chevron deference to the case on direct petition for review that reached a contrary conclusion. That is, matter of Cordero Garcia. So that decision is vacated here on direct petition for review. And that means we have a new zombie precedent, everyone. Congratulations, Michael K. Matt, for petitioner. Judge Van Dyke in dissent appears to disagree with all of it, quoting himself to state that, quote, I haven't been shy in my criticism of our court's abysmal and indefensible immigration precedents, end quote. Lamenting further, quote, how dirty our court has played to prevent the deportation of immigrants, end quote. Judge Van Dyke goes on to say a lot more things targeting his colleagues on the bench in a manner that appears offensive to me, so I will not repeat further here, lest we take away from the majority's actual decision. Here's some more non-citizen good. Although there are many decisions out there in the Ninth Circuit holding that the clear text of a criminal statute will satisfy the realistic probability test, it's always good to see the court affirm them. Quote, there are two ways to show a realistic probability that a state statute exceeds the generic definition. First, there is not a categorical match if a state statute expressly defines a crime more broadly than the generic offense. End quote. The second way, of course, is to find an overbroad case. By my calculations, only the Fifth Circuit requires non-citizens to find a case even if the statutory text of the criminal statute is overbroad and clear. But again, always nice to be reminded, quote, because California Penal Code Section 136.1b1's overbreath is evident from the text, we need not identify a case in which the state courts did in fact apply the statute in a non-generic manner, end quote. Remember it. And that is Cordero Garcia v. Garland. Next is Belinus Lucero v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 15th, 2022. This case is about vacated convictions and burdens. Like the Ninth Circuit case I just discussed, this decision is also about criminal convictions and cancellation of removal. And here, the non-citizen similarly succeeded. Mr. Belinus Lucero has lived in the U.S. for 35 years without authorization. I initially wrote, quote, nearly 40 years, end quote, until I realized that his date of entry into the U.S. was uncomfortably close to the year of my birth. Mr. Bolinas Lucero was a manager at a Burger King, and he had never been arrested before. But in 2012, he was arrested at his workplace and eventually charged and convicted of some theft-type crimes. Notwithstanding his nearly non-existent criminal prison sentence, DHS detained Mr. Bolinas Lucero and placed him in removal proceedings, where he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B, claiming that his removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his two U.S. citizen children. The IJ, however, deemed the convictions crimes involving moral turpitude, meaning that Mr. Bolinas Lucero can't even apply for the relief. The IJ also denied his alternative application for asylum and ordered him removed. Here's the thing, though. What had happened is that in California state court, and quote, without representation by an attorney, he pleaded guilty to all six charges the same day he was arraigned, end quote. 
As Mr. Bolinas Lacero later testified in immigration court, the whole dispute apparently regarded an allegation by a mentally ill individual's caregiver that he had provided an incorrect amount of change to the mentally ill individual at the Burger King. The customer was a regular and the allegation was false. The customer was confused, so Mr. Bolinas Lucero testified, and so the rest of his life corroborated. In response to the IJ's question of why he pled guilty then, he testified, quote, It was the first time I had ever gone to court, and it was in Orange County, and I really had no idea what to say, whether to say yes or no, end quote. It was all in Spanish, and he had only the interpreter to rely upon in criminal court, and he also explained that no one told him what the criminal codes and the other legal stuff meant. But correctly interpreting the at times harsh immigration framework that Congress has imposed, the IJ stated, quote, Unfortunately, I cannot alter your conviction, and it appears you pled guilty to it. If you think you were wrongly convicted, your only option would be to go back to that court and try to get it to correct what you believe is an error, end quote. Therefore, the IJ found the conviction CIMTs and denied relief, as I discussed, and the BIA affirmed. But before the BIA affirmed, Mr. Bolinas Lucero finally got an attorney, who filed a motion in California State Court to withdraw the guilty plea pursuant to California Penal Code Section 1018, which provides that, quote, in case of a defendant who appeared without counsel at the time of the plea, the court shall, for a good cause shown, permit the plea of guilty to be withdrawn and a plea of not guilty substituted, end quote, if the motion is timely. The attorney included all the stuff about Mr. Bolinas Lucero feeling pressure to plea, not understanding what was happening, and more, and they won. The whole thing resulted in a single guilty plea for, quote, violating Cal Penal Code Section 368D, theft from an elder adult, end quote. But at most, that was only one CIMT, if it was a CIMT at all. And more importantly, it entailed a sentence to 30 days incarceration, credit for time served. And that sentence meets the petty theft exception under immigration law at INA Section 212, meaning that under Ninth Circuit precedent, it cannot bar a non-citizen from non-LPR cancellation of removal on its own. Got it? One big problem, though. Mr. Bolinas Lucero's removal proceedings were already done by the time all of this played itself out. So he filed a motion to reopen with the BIA. And the BIA granted it, and it remanded to a different immigration judge, seemingly at random, who was not so swayed by the arguments. The new IJ believed Mr. Bolinas Lucero needed to, quote, provide evidence showing that his convictions were vacated on the merits and not pursuant to a rehabilitative statute for the vacatures to be effective for immigration purposes, end quote. That's essentially the matter of Pickering and matter of Thomas and Thompson's standards that permits vacated criminal convictions to linger around and destroy non-citizens' lives if they aren't vacated for the right reason. After some continuances and written argument, the IJ denied it all, in part it seems because there wasn't a transcript of the state court hearing that was vacating the conviction. So the IJ believed that those first convictions were still convictions for immigration purposes. Having reopened and remanded, the BIA affirmed on appeal. But the Ninth Circuit did not. Now first, a bit unfortunately, but not so unsurprisingly for non-citizens, the Ninth Circuit held that following the Supreme Court's decision in Pareda, if the non-citizen has the burden, as non-citizens do when applying for relief from removal, they do indeed have the burden to establish that their conviction was vacated, quote, on the basis of a defect in the underlying criminal proceeding, end quote or some other reason related to the merits, rather than for rehabilitative reasons. 
Why the conviction was vacated is, after all, I guess, a factual question. Does that mean that ICE has the burden to establish that a vacated conviction was for a rehabilitative purpose if the whole dispute is in the removal context? Seems that's the natural implication of this decision and Pareda to me. But I digress, as I often do. The Ninth Circuit places the burden on the non-citizen in relief, but then here, the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Bolinas Lucero met it. Why, you ask? Here's your big quote for the week. Quote, The grounds for allowing withdrawal of a guilty plea under Section 1018 are substantive and procedural defects in the underlying proceeding. End quote. It would appear that no further analysis by an IJ or the BIA is required. Caveat, be careful with your memorandums submitted in criminal court explaining why vacation is needed, because those are reviewed and will be reviewed by the Ninth Circuit, IJs, and the BIA. But I don't know. This decision seems like a strong holding for California Penal Code Section 1018 and its effect on convictions for immigration purposes. All of that means Mr. Bolinas Lucero gets a remand, presumably to the IJ to determine if now he can satisfy the other elements required of non-LPR cancellation of removal. A bit more remains at issue, but that's the gist. Oh, the saga that has resulted from what appears to be a mistaken incident of providing incorrect change at a Burger King. Congratulations Richard Lucero and Rosanna Kitwai-Shung for petitioner. And just to reiterate two things. It appears the Ninth Circuit standard for vacating convictions might be a bit non-citizen friendlier than is Thomas and Thompson. For as the Ninth Circuit notes, long-standing Ninth Circuit precedent holds that a quote, vacated conviction remains valid for immigration purposes when it is vacated solely for rehabilitative reasons or reasons related to the petitioner's immigration status, end quote. Emphasis by the court, and therefore intentional wiggle room provided by the court. And for all my California practicing for immigration attorneys, it totally appears that the Ninth Circuit has held that a vacated conviction pursuant to California Penal Code Section 1018 will satisfy matter of Thomas and Thompson and matter of Pickering, and will satisfy a non-citizen's burden for cancellation of removal under Pareda. Read the decision and give it to your criminal counsel colleagues. And that is Belinus Lucero v. Garland. Sticking with this week's crimmigration, we have matter of VAK, published by the BIA. Let's try to get it all out of the way at the top, all this crimmigration. Maybe. This case is about burglary, aggravated felonies. Mr. VAK is from Ukraine and became a lawful permanent resident of the United States. But in 2017, he was convicted of attempted burglary in the second degree in violation of sections 110 and 140.252 of the New York Penal Law, and was sentenced to two years in prison. Now, Mr. VAK is removable for other reasons, but if the conviction's an aggravated felony, he's ineligible for LPR cancellation of removal under INA section 248A. In this decision, the BIA held that yes, the conviction is an aggravated felony. Specifically, an INA Section 11A43U attempt or conspiracy to commit another aggravated felony. Here, an INA Section 11A43G theft or burglary offense, quote, for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year, end quote. That's the aggravated felony definition. 
And it's really kind of two aggravated felonies in one. But the Section 101A43U stuff wasn't challenged in this decision. More on that at the end. And so the issue in this decision came down to whether the completed second-degree burglary offense in New York matches the burglary definition at INA Section 101A43G. In its analysis, the BIA first concluded that the New York statute is clearly divisible. It criminalizes in separate subsections doing a whole bunch of bad things in a building, or alternatively, illegally entering or remaining in with the intent to commit a crime, quote, a dwelling, end quote. Unclear whether that first way of committing the offense would be a burglary or theft aggravated felony, but it didn't matter here because reviewing the conviction documents by employing a modified categorical approach because the statute was divisible, the BIA concluded that Mr. VAK was convicted of attempting to burglarize a dwelling, a subsection 2 offense. The BIA then held that subsection 2 categorically matches the federal definition of burglary employed by INA section 11843G. For example, as the Supreme Court recently explained in its Quarles decision, quote, the generic definition of burglary includes both unlawful or unprivileged entry into and remaining in a building, end quote. According to the BIA, that's what subsection 2 of the New York statute criminalizes as well. The generic definition of burglary does not, according to the BIA, require breaking and entering. Unlawfully remaining in a dwelling will do. Kind of like what the bad guys did in the toy store in Home Alone 2, if I recall correctly. The BIA also then determined, as it needed to to reach its decision here, that New York's definition of a dwelling matches the federal definition used for generic burglary at INA section 11843G. And that's because the New York definition encompasses a building that is, quote, normal and ordinary, that it was used as a place for overnight lodging, and with the customary indicia of a residence and its character or attributes, end quote. That definition, according to the BIA, aligns with the Supreme Court's recent decision in United States v. Stitt. In that case, according to the BIA, the Supreme Court held in a different context that the generic definition of burglary encompasses a dwelling that is defined even by, quote, vehicles or structures customarily used or adapted for overnight accommodation, end quote. To the BIA, the Supreme Court is concerned with whether the building or structure is one used for overnight accommodation. Because if it is, it indicates, quote, circumstances where burglary is likely to present a serious risk of violence, end quote. And here, actually, the New York statute, quote, defines burglary as a dangerous crime that is likely to create the possibility of a violent confrontation, end quote which according to the BIA is, quote, conduct that is narrower than and fits within the Supreme Court's definition of generic burglary, end quote. So it satisfies the definitions used at INA section 11843G, as explained recently by the Supreme Court in Stitt in another context. Complicated stuff. The BIA therefore overturned the IJ's finding that the crime was not an aggravated felony and overturned the IJ's grant of LPR cancellation of removal and then ordered Mr. VAK removed to war-torn Ukraine. In fairness to the BIA, the court did note in footnote that Mr. VAK had withdrawn his application for withholding and convention against torture protection prior to its decision. Maybe he'd like to renew it in a change country condition motion to reopen. Allow me to attempt to explain one more thing about attempt. Go!
Gonna just note how, in a footnote, the BIA noted that Mr. VAK had not argued that New York attempt is broader than the federal definition of attempt used at INA section 11843U. And so the BIA is assuming that there was a categorical match between attempts here. While the case might exist defining attempt for immigration purposes, I personally am unaware of it. And the BIA doesn't cite anything for the proposition in its footnote. While the federal definition of conspiracy used at INA section 11843U is the subject of many a BIA decision, I'm not so sure about attempt. An issue for another day. And that is matter VAK. Heading over to the First Circuit for a quick one about motions to reopen. Garcia Sarmiento v. Garland, published on August 17, 2022. Mr. Garcia Sarmiento is from Honduras and entered the United States as an LPR in 2001, but he was removed after being convicted of possession of cocaine. Back in Honduras, he started a barber shop, leading to his being extorted and threatened with murder by gang members. They killed his brother in June 2014, and he fled back to the U.S., where he entered without inspection. And he was convicted of illegal reentry in federal court. DHS reinstated the final order of removal after the sentence, which was simply time served, and Mr. Garcia Sarmiento expressed a fear of return, landing him in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. The IJ believed Mr. Garcia Sarmiento. But the IJ just didn't think he feared death in Honduras for the right reasons under immigration law. That means Mr. Garcia Sarmiento must return to Honduras even if, as the IJ seems to have believed, he will more likely than not be murdered. The BIA affirmed. During that time, though, Mr. Garcia Sarmiento, or maybe his attorney, had been busy. Eight days after the BIA's affirmance, Mr. Garcia Sarmiento filed a motion to reopen the first removal order from all those years ago and filed a stay of removal with the BIA, based on the fact that he had vacated that 12-year-old cocaine possession conviction. While Mr. Garcia Sarmiento didn't argue he should therefore still be an LPR, he did argue that now he'd be eligible for cancellation of removal or voluntary departure in reopened removal proceedings. The BIA denied the motion. Mr. Garcia Sarmiento petitioned for review all of it to the First Circuit. But according to the court, he couldn't petition for review the BIA's denial of the withholding-only stuff because he was months untimely from the 30-day petition for review deadline. Essentially, Mr. Garcia Sarmiento needed to petition for review the withholding of removal denial and simultaneously move the BIA to reopen if he wanted to save his review before the First Circuit. Now, his petition for review of the motion to reopen denial was timely, but it was denied by the First Circuit. According to the court, the BIA, quote, correctly found that Mr. Garcia Sarmiento is barred from reopening his removal order by INA Section 241A5, end quote. Under that statute, if a non-citizen enters the U.S. illegally after being removed, the non-citizen can only apply for withholding of removal or CAT protection by regulation, and can't reopen their prior order of removal. This aligns with the law of many circuits, including quite a few Ninth Circuit decisions discussed in recent weeks. Accordingly, the First Circuit didn't really review the substance of anything, and Mr. Garcia Sarmiento lost his case. And that is Garcia Sarmiento v. Garland.
Moving on to Tantchev v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on August 19th, 2022. This case is about aggravated felonies. I tricked you all. We've got more crimmigration. Mr. Tantchev is from Bulgaria and became a lawful permanent resident in 2012. He ran a trucking business for many years, a fact for which the Sixth Circuit cites to a published Seventh Circuit decision, United States v. Tatchev, so you know it's about to get interesting. Right, he started a side business shipping containers to Mongolia, whereby he wouldn't fill the containers and he wouldn't ask questions, but he would ensure that all paperwork was processed correctly. Turns out that at least in some cases, he was shipping stolen cars to Mongolia. In the Seventh Circuit, he was convicted of exporting stolen vehicles under 18 U.S.C. Section 553. Relevantly here, to be convicted of that, the defendant must know that the car was stolen when the shipping, or attempted shipment, occurs. Quote, to define knowledge, the district court gave what is known as an ostrich instruction, referencing situations where the defendant is willfully blind to material facts. End quote. A jury convicted under the ostrich instruction, the Seventh Circuit affirmed, and Mr. Tashev served his 40-month sentence. Naturally, removal proceedings. If it's an aggravated felony, Mr. Tashev loses his green card. DHS alleged that it did match the definition of an aggravated felony at INA Section 11843G, a theft, burglary, or receipt of stolen property offense, with a term of imprisonment of at least one year. An IJ and the BIA held that it was an aggravated felony, a different Sixth Circuit panel denied a stay of removal, and Mr. Tatchev is currently in Bulgaria. And now, this Sixth Circuit panel has agreed with the IJ and the BIA. In the 2017 decision matter of Dang, the BIA held that a criminal statute that requires a mental state, where the defendant knew or had reason to believe that a vehicle was stolen, was broader than the federal definition of receipt of stolen property used at INA Section 11843G. A mere reason to believe that the property was stolen won't cut it under immigration law. It's too low a standard, too low of a mental state to make someone deportable. So said the BIA. Rather, the aggravated felony definition, quote, requires both knowledge or belief that the property was stolen and an intent to deprive the owner of his or her property, end quote. Apparently, though, the BIA and Dang, quote, also went out of its way to clarify that its use of the term knowledge encompassed the widely accepted doctrine of willful blindness, end quote. Not only that, but an intent to deprive can be inferred from knowledge that the property was stolen, which again can be inferred from conduct evincing willful blindness. Lots of inferring going on. So cue the ostrich. Because at a minimum, that's what Mr. Tatchev was convicted of, that he acted like an ostrich and willfully put his head in the sand as unscrupulous individuals exported stolen cars to Mongolia. More importantly for immigration law, that's the minimum conduct criminalized by his statute of conviction, 18 U.S.C. section 553A1, and that conduct criminalized is more than a mere reason to believe that the property is stolen, deemed insufficient by the BIA in Diang. That means that Mr. Tatchev's offense matches the definition of a receipt of stolen property aggravated felony at INA section 11843G, and it means that he must remain in Bulgaria. Here's something completely off-topic.
While it's used in a different context here, the willful blindness standard discussed in this decision is used in many circuits to satisfy the government actor prong for Convention Against Torture Protection. And here's a nice quote for what willful blindness includes, both in the Sixth Circuit and from the Supreme Court itself. Quote, one, the defendant must subjectively believe that there is a high probability that a fact exists. And two, the defendant must take deliberate actions to avoid learning of that fact. End quote. Don't hate that standard for some cat briefs. And that's Global Tech Appliances Incorporated versus SEBSA from the Supreme Court, by the way. And that is Tatchev v. Garland. Returning to the First Circuit, we have Dorr v. Garland, published on August 19, 2022. This case is about particularly serious crimes. Mr. Dorr is from Haiti and became an LPR in 2007. But in 2016, he was convicted for distribution of $20 worth of marijuana, and also possession with intent to sell of a, quote, large amount, end quote, of marijuana, according to the police report. 25 grams. Mind you, I believe personal use of marijuana has been legal in Massachusetts and definitely Boston for a few years now. But of course, not for immigration purposes until the federal government changes the law. And in any event, this is selling. Deemed removable conduct by the immigration court, Mr. Dorr applied for asylum and related relief. The IJ found that the crimes were particularly serious by relying on matter of YL. But that was a mistake. Even if YL is a correct decision, the case only creates a presumption of particularly seriousness for drug trafficking convictions that are aggravated felonies. Mr. Doerr's crimes were not aggravated felonies, so the IJ erred. But instead of remanding, the BIA applied the matter of NAM and matter of Francesco analyses and determined that nevertheless, the crime was particularly serious. Now at this point in my reading I'm only on page 7, but I already know that Mr. Doerr wins. I bet you it's because the BIA conducted improper fact-finding by conducting that matter of Francesco crime-specific analysis in the first instance. Wanna bet? Should have taken the bet. While, quote, more than one of Mr. Doerr's arguments has teeth, end quote, the First Circuit focused on the fact that the BIA's matter of Francesco analysis, quote, was bereft of meaningful or rational explanation, end quote. So it's not that the BIA shouldn't have done the analysis in the first instance, it's that it didn't do a sufficient job with the analysis. Under Frantescu, to deem a crime particularly serious and bar a non-citizen from asylum and withholding of removal, the court must, quote, look to such factors as the nature of the conviction, the circumstances and underlying facts of the conviction, the type of sentence imposed, and most importantly, whether the type and circumstances of the crime indicate that the non-citizen will be a danger to the community, end quote. Matter of NAM later explains these requirements in a bit further detail with a three-step analysis. Here, essentially, the First Circuit doesn't believe that the BIA conducted an actual legal analysis. Quote, merely identifying the appropriate legal test and some of the relevant factors to be assessed, saying the test is indicative of a certain conclusion, and then listing certain facts as found by the IJ, does not constitute an application of law to facts. End quote. All the more important because matter of Frantescu makes the type of sentence imposed quite important. And the BIA didn't consider that at all. And how, posited the First Circuit, could the BIA rely on the fact that the police report described 25 grams as a, quote, large amount, end quote, of marijuana, 
When the INA and the BIA in matter of Castro Rodriguez, not to mention the Supreme Court in Moncrieff, have defined 30 grams as a, quote, small amount, end quote. Riddle me that. All told, the First Circuit was not kind to the BIA or oil, really, and remanded, strongly implying that Mr. Doar's crimes should not be deemed particularly serious. Congratulations Edward Crane, Philip L. Torrey, as well as law students Shaiva Rather, Lena Melio, and Katie Quigley, all from the Harvard Crimigration Clinic. Rock on. And lest I fail to exhaust... The First Circuit spent quite a few pages issuing some fairly non-citizen-friendly rulings on jurisdiction and exhaustion that I didn't have time to jump into here. But for example, unlike in some other circuits where perhaps a motion to reconsider with the BIA would have been required, the First Circuit states that, quote, in specifically seeking remand as the remedy to the IJ's misstep, that is the matter of YL thing, Mr. Doar reasonably followed the pathway set forth in the BIA's own precedent, end quote. Mr. Doar didn't need to then tell the BIA through a motion to reconsider that the BIA had done the wrong thing when the BIA disregarded what Mr. Doar had asked them to do. So keep this one in your back pockets, is Circuit Warriors. And that is Doar v. Garland. Move in right along. Al-Masadi v. Garland published by the 8th Circuit on August 15, 2022. Mr. al-Masadi is from Iraq and was admitted to the United States as a refugee in 1997. He became an LPR about a decade later, but he didn't naturalize, and in 2015, he pled no contest in Nebraska to committing negligent child abuse resulting in serious bodily injury to his six-month-old son. And IJ found that that met the definition of a crime of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect at INA Section 237A2EI, and so, Mr. Al-Masadi applied for asylum and related relief. After all, he met the international definition of a refugee in 1997. But the IJ denied that relief, deeming the conviction a particularly serious crime that barred him from everything except Convention Against Torture Deferral, which the IJ then denied on the merits. The BIA affirmed. First, the INA Section 237A2EI removability stuff. We've spoken about this a bit of late. Unlike the 10th Circuit, for example, but like the 11th Circuit two weeks ago, the 8th Circuit has deferred to matter of Velasquez Herrera, meaning that a state conviction can match this definition for removability if the state conviction requires, quote, proof of a likelihood or reasonable probability that a child will be harmed, but not a mere possibility or potential for harm, end quote. Or maybe? Before the 8th Circuit here, after all, Mr. Al-Masadi, quote, does not challenge the agency's definition, end quote. Therefore, applying that unchallenged definition of the removability provision for matter of Velasquez Herrera, the 8th Circuit agreed with the IJ and BIA that the Nebraska conviction matched that definition. Even if, as Mr. Al-Masadi argued, a conviction can occur where the defendant merely permits, quote, a child to be placed in a situation that endangers the child, the Nebraska offense requires that a perpetrator act with a mental state of at least criminal negligence, end quote. That makes the minimum conduct criminalized, quote, a criminally negligent omission, end quote, which the BIA has deemed sufficient to make a non-citizen removable. 
at least for convictions like this, where the endangering caused equates to having, quote, exposed a minor child's life or health to danger or the peril of probable harm or loss and covers conduct which presents the likelihood of injury to the child, end quote. Granular stuff. All of that means that Mr. Al-Masadi is removable. But is the crime a particularly serious crime that bars him from asylum and withholding of removal? Well, apparently there were newspaper articles about the facts of the event describing what happened to the son during the incident, and apparently DHS submitted those articles in support of its particularly serious crime allegation. Mr. Al-Masadi argued that the IJ shouldn't have considered those articles because they were inadmissible hearsay, but the federal rules of evidence don't apply in immigration court, so the BIA and the Eighth Circuit deemed their consideration okay. Plus, newspaper articles might get in even in federal court. Then, applying the matter of NAM analysis and considering those facts, the BIA concluded that as a crime against persons, it was the type that would make it particularly serious, and the facts of the crime showed that it was. The Eighth Circuit held that that too was proper, quote, giving particular weight to the serious bodily injury sustained by Mr. Al-Masadi's son, end quote. Yes, the mental state employed was only criminal negligence, but the harm was serious. Addressing the last remaining form of protection then, cat deferral, it gets a bit specific in the decision, but essentially, the Eighth Circuit didn't believe the BIA incorrect in how it weighed the risk of harm to Mr. Al-Masadi, notwithstanding his past experiences in Iraq. As to the risk of harm that he'd suffer as a result of his time in the U.S. and his lack of Iraqi identification, quote, the record is vague about what sort of serious criminal record would lead Iraqi authorities to detain, interrogate, and potentially torture a returnee, end quote. Seems like to the extent that the Eighth Circuit is willing to believe that Iraqis deported from the U.S. with criminal records are possibly experiencing torture, it believes that it's only occurring to suspected terrorists. In any event, quote, without more specific evidence that Iraqi authorities would detain and torture a returnee based on a conviction in this country for negligent child abuse, the record does not compel a conclusion that the agency erred, end quote. Standards of review. So Mr. Al-Masadi lost his case. And that is Al-Masadi v. Garland. Next is Estrada Cardona v. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on August 17th, 2022. You know we love deficient NTAs on this show. Here's case number 943. And I believe the Tenth Circuit is getting a bit exasperated too. Starting out as follows, quote, In the latest installment of What Triggers the Stop Time Rule, the government asks us to hold that the issuance of a final order of removal is a third extra statutory event sufficient to stop the clock. The plain language of the statute supports no such conclusion. Declining to read ambiguity into a statute where none exists, we hold that a final order of removal does not stop the accrual of continuous physical presence. End quote. So there you have it. You're all caught up. Oh, just kidding. So there you have it. Big non-citizen win. A removal order issued at the end of a case begun with a deficient NTA will not trigger the stop time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal. And so, a non-citizen who was otherwise eligible for the relief can move to reopen later on once they get the 10 years continuous physical presence required for the relief post-final order of removal. That's the holding. 
Important for Ms. Estrada Cardona because she entered the U.S. with a tourist visa and overstayed, and has two U.S. citizen children, one of whom suffers mental and physical disabilities, quote, which are likely to be lifelong, end quote. Arrested for driving without a license in 2009, she was eventually placed in removal proceedings where she couldn't even apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B because she hadn't been continuously present in the U.S. for 10 years before she was served with that notice to appear. But of course the NTA was deficient in violation of INA Section 239A. Ms. Estrada Cardona was ordered removed and filed stays of removal with ICE for four years, which were granted every year, until 2017, when something that I cannot recall vividly clearly changed at 1600 Pennsylvania. ICE denied her stay that year and eventually detained her for removal. But by the time ICE did that, the Supreme Court had issued Pereira. Under that case, a deficient NTA doesn't stop the 10-year clock for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Directly on point. But the BIA and a bunch of circuits issued a bunch of decisions after that that said fine, but a notice of hearing does. But then the Supreme Court said, no it doesn't, in Niz Chavez. That being said, none of that necessarily answers the question presented here. Does a removal order at least stop the 10 years continuous physical presence? That's the question before the 10th Circuit now. Because again, if it didn't, Mrs. Estrada Cardona now has 16 years continuous physical presence. And like I said, the Tenth Circuit said it didn't stop the accrual. Mrs. Estrada Cardona has her years. Referring to Nish Chavez and Pereira, a bit ironically, the court held that, quote, in one fell swoop, the Supreme Court cleared the way for many non-citizens, like Petitioner, to seek cancellation of removal, end quote. The Tenth Circuit will not defer to the BIA's contrary precedential decision 14 years ago in matter of Garcia, before all of this deficient NTA stuff even began, because the statute is not ambiguous. Quote, an unenumerated event, like the issuance of a final order of removal, cannot stop the clock. End quote. All of this, despite the fact it appears that ICE decided to physically remove Mrs. Estrada Cardona at some point during this dispute. I suppose she must be brought back now? Maybe. The Tenth Circuit does say that the ruling here will, quote, clearly enable her return to the BIA and ask for reopening so that she can make an application for cancellation of removal, end quote. And so according to the Tenth Circuit, Mrs. Estrada Cardona can now, quote, ask the BIA to treat any post-reopening application for cancellation of removal as if it were immediately preceded by 10 years of continuous physical presence in the United States, end quote. Again, all despite the fact that she is not currently in the United States. Strange stuff, although largely of ISIS own making by removing her during this legitimate dispute. Stranger still because really it all comes under the guise of a sua sponte motion to reopen. And the circuits can't usually review the BIA's denial of a sua sponte motion to reopen, we talk about that all the time. But where the BIA denies a sua sponte motion, quote, because it perceived the legal background and thought incorrectly that a reopening would necessarily fail, end quote, well, the Tenth Circuit held that it can review, and indeed, must remand. Okay, that last part was me. But the Tenth Circuit did remand here. Noting that, quote, this petition for review represents the latest chapter in the government's ongoing efforts to dig itself out of a hole it placed itself in, end quote. The Tenth Circuit ruled for Ms. Estrada Cardona. Quote, After years of statutory short-circuiting, the government finds itself in the uncomfortable position of being wrong. End quote. 
This ruling aligns with the Ninth Circuit's decision in Cantor v. Garland, discussed on episode 80 of the podcast, and goes on and on with great quotes and various rationales and logics for use in other circuits to make similar arguments. Also, some strong language here that equitable tolling of a motion to reopen deadline is warranted based on changes in law, such as Pereira and Niz Chavez. Just throwing that out there. Big case with lots of non-citizen good packed in. Give it a read. And congratulations to Jennifer M. Smith and Mark R. Barr for petitioner. And that is Estrada Cardona v. Garland. That leaves us with Dragomarescu v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on August 16, 2022. This decision is about deficient notices to appear, and really, no notice in absentia, motions to reopen. Mr. Dragomarescu is from Romania, and had conditional lawful permanent resident status for a few years based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen. However, he, and presumably his wife, missed their USCIS interview to remove that condition to the LPR status, an interview required under immigration law, and so USCIS terminated Mr. Dragomarescu's conditional status and placed him in removal proceedings. To do so, it mailed him a notice to appear, which was then filed with the immigration court. I'll just pause to note my reading of the statute that NTAs must be served in person and not through the mail where practical. And there isn't that much case law out there permitting this large expansion of service of NTAs through the mail without DHS needing to prove in immigration court that personal service was not, in fact, practical. But I digress. Again. And you'll never believe this. The NTA was deficient, as it lacked the date, time, and location of Mr. Dragomarescu's first removal hearing in violation of INA Section 239A, the regulations, the Supreme Court, a whole bunch of circuit decisions, the BIA, the list goes on and on. Mr. Dragomarescu claimed that he never received the NTA in the mail, although not through affidavit. He also argued later that he did not receive the follow-up notice of hearing with the date, time, and location of the first hearing. He didn't receive that notice of hearing because he had moved. Seems like he was in the process of a divorce from his wife. He didn't show up for the hearing because he didn't receive the notice, and he was ordered removed in absentia in 2016. Learning about all this in 2019, Mr. Dragomarescu filed a motion to reopen, claiming that he never received the notice of the hearing. After all, the notice of hearing and the court decision ordering him removed in absentia were returned to the immigration court as undeliverable. The IJ denied the motion to reopen to the BIA affirmed, believing Mr. Dragomarescu at fault for failing to keep DHS updated of his current address. On petition for review, the 11th Circuit laid out the law for in absentia motions to reopen generally, stating that a non-citizen, quote, who does not receive notice of the time and place of his removal hearing after he moves and fails to send DHS his new address can be removed in absentia, so long as he at least received the initial notice to appear, advising him of his obligation to keep his address up to date and the consequences of failing to do so, end quote. So that's something. Gotta show that the non-citizen didn't receive the NTA, though. And so holding, the 11th Circuit deferred to the BIA's long-standing decision in matter of GYR, likely not for the first time. Mr. Dragomarescu could not make that showing here. Quote, Although he argues otherwise, the record shows that Mr. Dragomarescu received the notice to appear DHS sent to him in January 2016. 
DHS sent the notice by regular mail to Mr. Dragomirescu's then-current address. The immigration courts apply a presumption of receipt to a notice to appear, sent by regular mail, when the notice was properly addressed and mailed according to normal office procedures. End quote. That latter presumption stuff is from the BIA's 2008 decision in matter of MRA. All of this, by the way, despite the fact that actually, the address used to mail the NTA was indeed misspelled to include an extra R in the city of Marietta, Georgia. But agreeing with the BIA, the 11th Circuit stated that, quote, we also think the errant consonant would not have confused the postman, end quote. To the BIA and to the 11th Circuit, Mr. Dragomirescu didn't rebut the matter of MRA presumption of delivery because he, quote, did not submit an affidavit from either himself or friends, which would serve to rebut the presumption of delivery, end quote. Affidavits matter a lot. Mr. Dragomirescu's in absentia motion to reopen, therefore, remains. Footnote time again. The 11th Circuit reaches this holding despite stating, in a footnote, that, quote, the Supreme Court has explained that, to comply with the statute, the notice to appear must provide, within the four corners of a single document, all the information the statute requires that it contain, including the time and place of the removal hearing, end quote. That is the NTA. That's what the NTA needs to have. But the 11th Circuit believed that clear statutory violation immaterial here basically because of its ruling in Costa Gomez Aguilar last month that a two-step service of the notice to appear and then the notice of hearing with the missing information is proper, and that the notice of hearing is all that really matters for in absentia motions to reopen. But that's a heck of a quote for other deficient NTA-type motions, such as termination or dismissal of proceedings. Also, in a footnote, the 11th Circuit states that what appears to be the very non-citizen adverse 2002 decision in Dominguez v. U.S. Attorney General is in tension with matter of GYR, and it appears, based on what the 11th Circuit is saying, that it isn't good law. So there's that, if DHS ever brings up Dominguez v. U.S. Attorney General. If not, well, forget I ever mentioned it. And that is Drago Morescu, the U.S. Attorney General. <laughs> So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, 
I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.